Where do you want to be? Where do you want to be? If some of y'all were honest, right now you'd rather be in some exotic place, sitting on some beach, enjoying the sun and some fun. Others of y'all are tired this Sunday morning and would rather be curled up in the bed or on the couch with a good book or maybe watching your favorite show. Where is it you want to be? I mean, think about it for a second. Where is the, the place that, that you could most dream of? Take money out of the picture, right? You could afford to be anywhere in the world. Where is it you would want to be? Can you picture it? Can you imagine it? Now imagine you could be there and that place is multiplied by infinity. The best place you could possibly imagine of being at is far greater than anything you can imagine. And now imagine that you've been offered to come there and you don't have to pay a thing for it. How would you respond? That's what we'll consider this morning in our passage through Matthew's gospel. And so if you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Matthew chapter 21? No, I'm sorry, 22. <laughs> Matthew chapter 22. And this morning, unlike last week, we will not read the entire chapter. We will read the first 14 verses and work our way through them. If you're new with us this morning or haven't been here in a while, we've been working through Matthew's gospel for the last few months and really over the last few years, taking chunk by chunk. It's our way of trying to submit ourselves to God's word. We believe that God speaks to us through his word. We believe that he reveals who he, who he is in his word. And so we give ourselves to working through books of the Bible right, until we reach the finish to, to allow God to unfold himself to us. And so we've been working through Matthew's gospel as Matthew has put Jesus Christ before our eyes to see him and submit to him. This morning we'll look at the first 14 verses of Matthew 22. I'll read it and then we'll explain it and apply the text to our lives. Let's read. Matthew chapter 22. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention. And went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. 
So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him out into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. Here's what I think is the main point of Matthew chapter 22, verses 1 through 14. The the main point of the sermon this morning. God graciously invites all kinds of people into his kingdom. But you best come quickly and correctly. God invites all kinds of people into his kingdom. But you best come quickly and correctly. In this passage, we, we see God's gracious willingness to welcome us into his kingdom. But we're also met with two warnings, which will turn, serve as the two points to our sermon this morning. Warning number one, don't refuse God's grace. We see that in verses one through seven. And warning number two, don't presume upon God's grace. We see that in verses eight through 14. So number one, don't refuse God's grace. And number two, don't presume upon God's grace. Point number one, don't refuse God's grace. Refusing God's grace is found not only in the details we read about in these first seven verses, it's also the background behind these verses. Refusal is what's fueling this conversation here. We learn in verse 1 that Jesus is speaking to a group of people in parables. The the them there, he, he spoke to them, are the chief priests and the elders, the Jewish religious leaders. Remember last week, they began to to question Jesus' authority. It's the last week of Jesus' life. He's come into Jerusalem. Finally, the king, the Messiah, has come, proclaiming his rule through his actions. And the people have praised him with their lips. They've seen the things he's done, and, and so have the religious leaders. But instead of them giving him a claim, they buck against his rule. And so Jesus confronts them. He speaks to them in conversations. And if you look back, starting in chapter 21, verse 28, all the way through now, Jesus has been speaking to them in parables. Now, to jog your memories, a parable is a story that has a deeper spiritual meaning behind it. Its understanding isn't found on the surface. You know, we might sometimes think of of parables as something of of sweet kids' storybook tales, simply filled with illustrative and interesting details. We might think of parables as kind of a verbal picture book. But you know, we learned back in chapter 13 of Matthew that 
primarily the reason Jesus used parables wasn't to, to jog people's visual senses. It was to judge them. They would not receive the clear revelation about him. Clearly, this was not some regular human being. Nobody does the miracles he does. No one speaks with authority the way he does. Clearly, this is someone different. Clearly, this is someone divine. It's clearly seen. The, the writing's all over the wall. They would not accept the clear revelation of what Jesus' works and his words said about himself. So what Jesus did is speak in ways that would cloud their eyes, that would keep them spiritually blind. Jesus said back in chapter 13, verses 13 through 15, this is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, you will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their eyes they can barely see, and their ears they can barely hear. Lest their eyes should be open, and their ears understand, and with their heart they turn, and then I would heal them. You see, when you refuse the clear revelation of who God is, it becomes more difficult to understand him, to trust him. Here it is. The grace of God has appeared on earth in human form, walking among the people. They could see Jesus with their eyes, but they turned their hearts away from him. And so couldn't clearly see who he was. You know, it's the same now. You might be here this morning and either you're self-consciously not a Christian or you say you are, but deep down you know that you're not really trusting in Jesus. And perhaps it's because you say the Bible is really hard to understand. But is that really the case? Or is it that the Bible has gotten harder and harder and harder to understand, Jesus harder and harder and harder to accept and to submit to as a response to your hard-hearted rejection of the clear revelation of Jesus that you have already known? Maybe you grew up in church and people told you about Jesus, but you bucked against it. And now you can't even fathom that he's real. But is that so much because people have failed you, failed to adequately explain Jesus to you, who he is? That's certainly possible. There's room for that. If that's your case this morning, then we're glad you're here. One of the things we want to do as a church is to clearly walk through the Bible that clearly talks about who Jesus is. But you know, I can sit up here and talk until I'm blue in the face. The people around you can spend hours and hours and hours talking to you about Jesus, explaining who he is, answering all your questions. But it could be that part of God's judgment on you is not just condemning you to hell later, but clouding your understanding now. God has held out his word to you, has held out his son to you, and you have not accepted 
And so now it's harder to respond to him as an act of his judgment. One of the things you can do right now is to ask him to ease his hand of judgment, to forgive you for your rejection and to give you clarity of understanding. Even right now, as I'm speaking, pray, Lord, help me to see. Help me to believe. Yes, his judgment might be on you, but also he's gracious. Jesus speaks to these refusing, rejecting, rebellious religious leaders in parables as a judgment on their consistent hard-heartedness. But amazingly, he's still speaking to them, right? It's not as if they're so beyond salvation, so rooted in their rejection that Christ is just silent. So friends, see the grace of God in that he continues to speak. If we lived in a world where God was just quiet, it would be the worst kind of world to live in. I mean, if God was, was just on mute, we would all be in misery. Dead in our sins, we would not know how to live. We would not know how to be saved. We would not know what he's done to save us. But God keeps speaking. What a grace of God it is that he speaks to us. So keep coming to church to hear God speak. Keep opening your Bible, even when you don't feel like it, to hear God speak. Jesus spoke to them. And he spoke to them about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God, as we've talked about, is not some physical place or a specific realm. It's more God's spiritual reign over his people. How God rules over those who make up his kingdom who he brings in as citizens. You see, God is king, but none of us naturally are citizens of his kingdom. All of us naturally are citizens of another kingdom. We, because of our sins, don't belong to God and submit to his rule. We, in our sin, have submitted to Satan's rule and given our lives to him. But Jesus keeps talking about another kind of kingdom, the kingdom of heaven that's broken into the world with the coming of the king to bring sinners like us into it. What is this kingdom like? Well, Jesus tells us here. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast to his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. There's an invitation that's already been sent out. You see that here. Those who the king sends servants to are those who've already been invited to this wedding feast. A wedding feast would be a time of of celebration. In in the first century, the, the celebration would last for several days with the feast lasting an entire day. The king is throwing a feast to celebrate the wedding of his son. And he's invited folks to it. It's not a closed-off affair. It's it's not a private event. It's not a destination wedding where no one can come. He's got a guest list. Uh, People have been invited to come to this royal occasion. To get an invitation to come dine with the king is a high, high honor. I mean, remember back in, in the book of Esther, the evil Haman who was a high official in the king's court, 
When he received an invitation to, to dine with the king, he wasn't like, oh, oh yeah, this is what we normally do on Wednesdays and Thursdays. Everybody in the king's court eat with the king. No, he was elated. He was ecstatic. The king wants to eat with me? You see, just the invitation itself was an act of incredible graciousness. The king is way up here, and none of us are on his level. Well, it's the same here. You get an invitation from the king. He's invited you to come and celebrate this high moment of life where his son is being married. What a joy. And not only does this king invite folks, which is amazing enough that he extends an invitation to those below him to come celebrate with him, to share in his joy, to be part of his joy. You, you know, that's what salvation is. The king calling you to be part of his joy. Salvation ain't something that's supposed to be dour. You ain't called to something that's less satisfying than the life you live now, but one that's more joyous than you could ever know. In any case, the king not only invites people to come, the king then on the day of the celebration sends out his servants to remind people today is the day. The king is so joyous and so wanting others to be part of his joy that he makes multiple efforts to bring people to this wedding feast. The king here in the parable represents God the Father. Remember, this is a parable relating to God's kingdom, how God acts. He invites people to come. He tells people to come to celebrate his son, Jesus Christ, on his wedding day. Jesus, back in chapter 9, verse 15, has already presented himself as the bridegroom. It's an idea with all kinds of messianic meaning. Hosea chapter 2 spoke of a day when people would call God their husband and he would betroth them to him forever. And Isaiah chapter 62 verse 5 spoke of a coming day of salvation when God would come and scoop up his people and rejoice over his people as a bridegroom rejoices over his bride. That day has come, Jesus is saying, with this parable. The kingdom has broken into the world. God has invited you to the feast, celebrating the fact that his son has come to make you his own, to rescue you, to marry you, to take you away from being married to sin and Satan, and to bring you into his home, to be his spiritual spouse. But this amazing invitation from the almighty king is not met with joyful acceptance, but with deliberate rejection. The king invited, but the end of verse 3 says, those invited would not come. Who is Jesus talking about here? Well, given the immediate context and, and who he's speaking to, it's, it's most certainly the religious leaders, the supposed elite of the Jewish crop, they had greater access to God more than other people, or at least they, they would say so. And in some ways, it was true. I mean, they've been trained in religious schools. 
they've had access to some of the best Jewish teachers. They've studied God's word day and night. They've learned a lot about the Lord. They've had something of front row access to God. And yet when they're called to come to God through his son and celebrate his son, they don't come. They refuse God's gracious invitation. But it's not just them. It's the entire nation of Israel. This here is a condemnation of the supposed people of God. The religious leaders' rejection and refusal is met largely with the people's rejection and refusal of Jesus. Yes, we all just left a scene last week where large crowds of Jews are shouting about Jesus. But just in a few days, large crowds of Jews will still be shouting for not to put a crown on him, but to put him on a cross. It's the behavior that had long marked God's chosen people Israel. For years and years, God sent his servants to them, his prophets, time and time again to speak to them about God's ways and God's works and to point them back to God, to point them to their Savior, but they refused to listen. Just as the people in this parable refused the king's invitation, just as many of us have refused the king's invitation. But we learn here something about God's character. Not only is he gracious, he is patient, long-suffering, forgiving. Verse 4 says, after being initially rejected, the king sends out other servants to invite people a second time to come to the feast. I mean, some of us write folks off the first time they don't respond the way we like. Let folks not text you back in a timely fashion and you catch a toad. Or maybe you, you offer to, to have someone over for dinner. Or to, to get together and read the Bible together. And they refuse. And you like, never again. Ain't putting myself out there again and again. But saints, if we would be godly, live lives that more reflect God, then we've got to be more gracious, more patient, more persistent, more forgiving of seeming slights and insults. I wonder how many of our evangelism and discipling efforts have been stunted because we simply give up on folks too quickly. Who is it that you need to keep holding out your hand to? Inviting them to know Christ, inviting them to know him better. Write their names down now. Follow up with them this week. Be patient and persistent with people. The king in verse 4 keeps inviting. And this time in verse 4, he tries to incentivize the invitees to come. I mean, he sells the celebration. Look, I prepared everything for you. My best oxen, my, my fattest calves have been slaughtered and freshly prepared. Everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. He seems to know something of human nature. I mean, we want to know what we get in before we accept an offer. I was on a text chain a few days ago, and, and one brother said he had free tickets to a Wizards game. And immediately another brother texted back and said, well, where the seats at? That's how we are, isn't it? 
Well, the king says, look, you'll have the best seats, the best food, the best time. Come to the feast. The saints, that's what awaits us in heaven. You know that? There's another feast at the end of the age. What Revelation 19 calls the marriage supper of the Lamb. A glorious celebration that is beyond our wildest dreams of all those who are in Christ. We'll enjoy the best fellowship in the presence of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. The best food, and you won't get fat from it. The best freedom. You know, sometimes when we talk about salvation, we only talk about what we're saved from, which is glorious enough. I mean, because of Christ's death on the cross for our sins and resurrection from the grave as proof that our sins are forgiven, through trust in Jesus, we're saved from the wrath of God. We're saved from the guilt of sin. We're saved from an eternity in hell. I mean, it's amazing what we're saved from. But God also wants us to know what we're saved to. Eternity with him. Everlasting joy and peace and comfort. No more sickness or sorrow. No more fear or worry. No more anxiety or depression. No more sin or struggle against sin. No more tears. No more death. There'll be no more funeral sorrow, but only feasting celebration. That's what God is calling us to. So come. How do you come? You confess that your sins against God are many, but his mercy is more, Joe. You admit that you've rebelled against him, but then you cling to the cross of Christ who died for our rebellion against sin, who suffered in our place as our substitute and has given his perfect record in our place and we would turn from our sins and put our trust in him. That's how you come. You don't come by your own methods or your own methodology or your own righteousness. You come by what Christ has done. He says, come, and you say, yes, Lord. So come, be saved, and gain entrance into God's eternal kingdom. He's calling you today through this message, if you don't know him, to come. Go to him now. Call out to him, even in your seats. Lord, I don't want to keep living in sin. I hate it, and I know I cannot bring myself from it. Thank you for sending Jesus to rescue me. Put your trust in Jesus. Turn away from your sins. Trust in him. He will save you this very day. You want to know more about that? Talk to someone around you. Talk to me after the service. We love to let you know how you can follow Jesus. But you know, even God's passionate persistent, promotional invitation in verse 4 is met with rejection. In verse 5, we see that the people still refuse to come. They paid no attention and went off, verse 5 says, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. You know, it shows that you can refuse God can deny his calling out to you through brutality or through busyness. You might think that the people who really deny God, who really reject him, are those savages overseas who kill Christians, who physically persecute believers for speaking about Jesus. 
but you can kill God's voice in your life, can silence his notifications by just filling your life with other things, other things important to you. Things that you place, whether you say so or not, as more important than God. I mean, remember, this is the king here calling people to come to this celebration. This isn't some co-worker you can just brush off. This is the king. And so, yes, this is partly an invitation, but also a summons. Come is not a mere suggestion. Come is a demand. You should come and you must come paying no attention, saying you've got better things to do, putting his servants to death is then the ultimate sign of disrespect. It's like last Sunday. And when I say last Sunday, ain't none of y'all thinking about the sermon, all of y'all thinking about that slap. (laughs) At the prestigious Oscars, you had this appalling scene you had Chris Rock on stage making this joke that was below the belt. We should say that. It was in bad taste, disrespectful even. And then you had Will Smith get up out of his seat, walk calmly up to the stage, and slap this man right across the face. Then turn his back on him as if he didn't matter. Strut back to his seat, sit through the rest of the ceremony, even receive an award, and then go on partying the rest of the night. Going on with life like nothing ever happened. The disrespect was shocking. But friends, that's just a small picture of what we do against God. This is what we do when God holds out invitations to us calls us to come to him, and we reject him, refuse him. It's like a smack in God's face. We turn away from him and go back to living our lives as if he don't matter at all. It should shock us. More shocking than than what happened at the Oscars is what happens every day when God calls out, inviting us to come spend time with him, to rejoice in him. When God gives you that inkling to pray to him, that inkling to read his word, that inkling to to talk about him, to, to share the good news with others, that inkling today to turn from your sins and trust in him. And we say, nope, got too much to do. Other things going on. Got to do my own thing. God is calling out, come, come to the rich feast of fellowshipping with me and my son. Come be with me. Shut up. I have no time for you. Other things to do. Oh, friend, see the great disrespect when we turn from God. And see the great grace and mercy of God in putting up with our sin and disrespect for so long. He sent his word, he sent his prophets over and over again to call his people back to himself, but they kept slapping him away. Then he sent his beloved son, his only beloved son, and you know what they did to him? Keep reading on in Matthew. Matthew chapter 26, verse 27, they spit in his face and struck him and slapped him. Then they crucified him. 
And it's not just them, it's us. That's what we do when we sin. Friends, how long do you think the Lord will keep putting out his face to be smacked by you? It won't be forever. Look at verse 7. We read that after persistent refusal by the people to come to the feast, that the king grew angry. Yes, friends, God is love, but God gets angry. God gets angry at the things that should produce anger, at sin, at our sin, and he will not suffer it for long. The king sends his troops to destroy the murderers and burn their city. It's a sign of what God will ultimately do to all who refuse his gracious invitation to come into his kingdom. To turn away from their sin and to submit to his son, Jesus. Grace will ultimately, if you keep rejecting, keep slapping God away, grace will give way to judgment. God will destroy sinners. Who refuse his grace. So, don't refuse his grace. Why would you? When he calls, go. There's joy in his presence, but judgment outside of it. Don't refuse God's grace. And don't presume upon God's grace. Point number two, don't presume upon God's grace. Presuming upon God's grace is what the Jewish people did. They thought that because God had chosen them to be his, his special people in the Old Testament, to be in a relationship with him and to re, re, reflect him, represent him, that they were set. That they were automatically okay. And so then could live however they wanted, but they were wrong. In refusing God's son, they cut themselves off from God's kingdom. And so God turned to others. In verse 8, we see God, represented again by the king, turning to his servants again and sending them out again. But not back to the original invite list. After their continued refusal, he proclaims they were not worthy to come. But this feast will be filled. You see, our sin don't frustrate God's plans. God is going to still celebrate his son. Heaven will still be joyous with or without you. You are not the life of the party. God is. But he chooses to celebrate it with you. And so the king sends out his servants in verse 9 saying, Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you can find. It's a foreshadow of the gospel invitation going out, not just to the Jews, but eventually to the Gentiles. At, at the end of this book, Jesus will similarly say, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. All kinds of people are invited as these servants are sent out into the main thoroughfares of the city. And verse 10 says that these people included both good and bad. From the law-abiding, upstanding moral citizen to the despised tax collector and prostitute and even Gentile, the outcast, all have been invited to the wedding feast. 
I mean, can you imagine the scene? You are no good, nobody, perhaps up to no good. And the next minute you know, the king's servants come up to you and say, hey, today the king wants you to be next to him at the wedding feast of his son. You ain't never got an invitation like that. I mean, the closest most of us have ever gotten to royalty is going to a King James game or a Queen Bee concert. And they ain't even real royalty. But here's the king of the country, much more the king of the universe, who called light to shine out of darkness, who called life to come out of nothingness, who called the sun to rule the day and the moon and stars to rule the night, who calls every single star by name. Here's that king of all creation calling you to come be with him? Oh, my Lord. The, the honor shown to the dishonorable. You see, because it's not just the goody two-shoes who get invited to God's kingdom, who get invited to the king's feast. It's the bad you see that damn verse 10? It's the fornicators and fugitives. It's the hustlers and the homosexuals. It's, it's the successful businessmen and the stay-at-home moms. You see, we all in the same, same pot. Because of our sin, we are all dead in sin and we all need a savior. And we are so bad that we don't see our need to seek and call out for a savior. But God is so good that he seeks and calls out to us to save us. Come, he says, come. God is, is no respecter of persons. Your seemingly put together life does not impress him. But neither does your seemingly too bad life, too torn up life, a too sinful life turn him away. He comes for you and calls out to you, to me. It's grace shown to sinners to call out to us. And nobody is too far gone for God. As Abraham asked, or as God asked Abraham, is anything too hard for God? Or as Jesus said, with God, all things are possible. So if you're here this morning and think that you are too far gone, God has another word for you. And if you're here this morning and you're sitting next to people that make you feel like you're too far gone, then we have a word for you. We are living examples that God changes sinners. We remember what we used to be, how we used to act. We are not goody two-shoes. We are dead, cold-hearted sinners who've done some gross things in our past. And it's only by the grace of God that we are what we are today. And it's only by the grace of God that we will be what we will be. Thanks. Remember today who, who you used to be. Yeah, not to, 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 to revel in it. Sometimes I can think about my past. I'm like, oh, that was a good time. It really wasn't. <laughs> think about how you used to be. What God has rescued you from. Think about how you were dead in sin. You were pursuing hard the world. And God in his grace broke in and spoke to you called out to you. Do you remember that moment? Remember that time period in your life when through some preacher or some radio program or some friend or some parent or some grandparent, some stranger, God of the universe called you to come to him? Do you remember that? 
Praise him for his grace. He's still gracious to you. Praise him for his grace. But don't presume upon it. You see, this ragtag bunch, unlike the first group of invitees, actually come to the feast when the king calls. They respond. The end of verse 10 says the wedding hall was filled with guests. But one of them didn't come correctly. Verse 11 says that when the king came to the wedding hall, he went around to look at the guests, to greet them, to to see them. After all, this wasn't the original invite list. And upon inspection, he saw there that there was a man who had no wedding garment. He did not have the appropriate attire. Now, you might say, of course not. I mean, the servants just picked these people up from the streets. But but remember, the, the wedding feast lasted all day. So these people likely had time to go home once they were alerted of the king's invitation and to change. I mean, notice... Out of the many guests that filled the hall, it's only one man who didn't have the right clothes on. The rest of them seemed dressed for the occasion. We all know that certain occasions demand certain attire. I went to a funeral on Friday for a friend's mother. And of the hundreds of guests, not one had a hoodie and sweats on. Later, Friday evening, I I logged on to to witness my cousin's wedding ceremony in Atlanta on Zoom. And of the hundreds of guests, not one person had a jersey and a snapback on. And it's not because the invites included a dress code. It's because all those invited knew that the occasion required that you dress a certain way to show honor to the host. Well, it's the same here. All the other guests knew that the invitation, gracious as it was, came with some demands, some requirements. But this man, it seems, only came for what he could receive. Some free food, a few hours out of work early on a Friday, with no regard for the host and what he demanded. He didn't care enough about the king to put on the appropriate clothes to honor him to show gratitude for his graciousness. The king comes to him in verse 12 and asks, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And the man was speechless. He knew he was in the wrong. He, He knew he had no excuse. He knew he should have come correctly, clothed in a way that honored instead of insulted his great and gracious host. And because he did not, he got kicked out. Verse 13 says, The king instructed his servants to to bind him hand and foot and cast him into outer darkness, a place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's terms that Matthew uses to describe judgment. For that? For showing up to the feast inappropriately dressed? Yes. You see, this king is that noble that to get a grand offer to come into his presence and then to show up as if he wasn't great, as if his offer wasn't great, as if you'd still be rather out in those streets than in the king's presence. At least that's what your clothes say. It was all a slap in the face. 
the king will not put up with people who presume upon his grace. Now, what's this all mean for us? I mean, does it mean we need to all show up suited and booted on Sunday mornings for church? Some of us do. Not all. That's fine, but that's not what these verses are getting at. Remember, this is a parable. So, so the word pictures paint a deeper spiritual portrait. You see, clothing in the scriptures often signifies someone's spiritual state. Another pastor reminded me recently that in the Old Testament, the, the priests had to wash their clothes before they entered the Lord's presence in the temple. It was sort of an outward symbol of the moral cleanliness needed to go before him. Or in the New Testament, think about how certain righteous conduct is talked about in terms of clothing. So 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5, Peter says, clothe yourselves with humility. Or in Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 and, and verse 14, the apostle Paul says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Paul says believers must put on these things like pieces of clothing. Wear them as identity markers of who you are and who you belong to. The appropriate apparel we must wear as God's chosen ones, as those called into his presence, is holy lives. You, you see, some of us might be willing to come into God's presence, to, to, to come to church, make a profession of faith, get baptized even, and even join the church. But we still want to wear our old clothes, our old sins, live our old lives. You might think to yourself, I, I know that I'm his. He called me and I responded to him. I confessed my sins and trusted in Jesus. But then why does your life look the exact same as it did before this profession? As if he's never called you. Are you presuming upon God's grace? As if God should just be happy to have you? Or are you demonstrating that you're happy to have him? over you, in you, transforming you. What kind of clothes are you wearing? Or to change the metaphor, what kind of fruit are you producing? What does your life say about who your Lord is? To come to the king is to live like he's your king, to live a righteous life before him. And beloved, we can live this kind of righteous, holy life. Not on our own, but because Jesus Christ has clothed us in his righteousness. He's taken away the filthy garments of Isaiah 64, 6 that Joe read about. The filthy garments of our sin. He's taken them away and taken them as his own and buried them in his cross and his burial. And then he's raised up from the grave, pure and spotless, as he shone on that Mount of Transfiguration on Mount seven, uh, Matthew 17. He's, he's given us then those same pure robes washed in his precious blood. 
We live holy lives not on our own. We live our holy lives in him and through him and by his power and his grace strengthening us and sustaining us to live like God is our king. Showing honor to him by our holy living. So that when God examines us, when he looks at us, and he does, we all live before his watchful eye. And one day we will all stand before his judgment seat. When he examines us, what he will see is not our wretchedness, not our filthy rags. Rather, he will recognize familial apparel. These are the clothes of my son, our lives hidden in him, his robe, ours, and thus we are God's and belong in his kingdom, never to be removed. But our clothing, our conduct, our lives matter. It reveals our spiritual states. Don't boast in the fact that, that you heard the gospel, once responded to the gospel, walked an aisle, said a prayer, did that back then. What about now? You see, as verse 14 tells us, many are called. That gospel call to trust in Jesus, to turn away from your sins, goes out to many, 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 many are called. But few are chosen. How do you know if you're chosen? Well, when God calls, you come quickly and correctly. You come initially when the king calls, and you continue living like he's your king all the days of your life. Saints, don't refuse God's grace this morning, and neither presume upon it, but rather lavish in it. And live righteously before the Lord, looking forward to the day when we'll physically be in his presence, at his table, feasting with him forever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we praise you for this most amazing invitation to come into your kingdom. We, sinners as we are, Lord, dead in our sin, filthy as we are in our sin, we have been invited to come into your heavenly kingdom. And Lord, we praise you, Lord, that you have invited us to come, not to sit on the outer edges of the kingdom, and not to stand at the gates to watch God. You have invited us in your kingdom and up to your very table to sit with you and to feast with you. Oh, Lord, we pray that none of us would turn away that kind of offer. Soften our hearts to make us see how amazing that offer is and to accept it by faith and repentance. And keep us, Lord, living as if this offer is amazing. Amen. Oh, Lord, we pray that the invitation of Christ to come and be with him dwarfs every other temptation and invitation of the world to come indulge in sin. Oh, Lord, let us not lower our expectations for joy, but heighten them, looking forward to that day that is coming where we will feast with you forever. Prepare us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.